Um, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Be main text here. We're good, Danielle? Yes? Both have started? Yep. All right. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this day and for this time. We pray you'd continue to help us, Lord, to see these principles that would help us learn to bless your name and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 2 Corinthians 1 was the ministry defined, all right? And we saw that that key, it started with suffering. Um, But chapter 2, if you're looking for a heading or a thought, it's going to be the minister described. The minister described. Chapter 1 was the ministry defined, and we saw nine general principles that you should keep in mind when you're dealing with people and also yourself as a, as a child of God. But chapter 2 is really the minister described, the person. And the key of the theme of this chapter is a forgiving spirit. So, chapter 1, the ministry defined, suffering is where we started. Chapter 2, the minister described with a, he has a forgiving spirit, or she has a forgiving spirit. That's what the whole chapter is almost entirely about. If you want to go to, I should have told you to start in chapter 5, I'm sorry, chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Just a couple of things to introduce here. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse number 18. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, 18, it says, All things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us, now he's talking to the whole church there, because right Everybody's in the ministry and given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So number one, the ministry God gave us is called a ministry of reconciliation. Number two, verse 19. To wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So the ministry God gave us is a ministry of reconciliation. That's verse 18. And the message God gave us is a message of reconciliation. That's in verse number 19. Everything about what we're supposed to be doing with people is reconciliation. The act of reconciling, reconciliating, right? Bringing them back to agreement, bringing back to agreement and fellowship parties that are at variance. Renewing friendship after disagreement or enmity. And I want to start with this thought because if our ministry and our message are reconciliation, then that must be your goal as a minister to try to help people put things back together again. Reconcile them to God and reconcile them possibly to each other. And if you go back to 2 Corinthians 2, I'm not going to read all of this. I'm going to break it down in little pieces in a second. But I want to just say this before we jump into the principles. This book of 2 Corinthians is about dealing with a saint who wants to come back. It is not about chasing a prodigal in the pig pen. That is not what we're talking about here. You cannot spend your whole life chasing people that don't want to be found because you can never help somebody more than they want to be helped. 
I will keep saying that, right? If you want an example, what did the father do in Luke chapter 15? He did not go down to the pig pen. He didn't lean over the wires of the pig pen and say, come on, man, just come on back. No, he waited at the edge of his field and allowed God to let that young man come to himself. And when he came back, then the father was ready to work. But you cannot help somebody more than they want to be helped. So when we talk about reconciliation, we're talking about people that want to come to the table, and make things right. We're not talking about you chasing people in the pig pen. You will lose sleep and waste a lot of time if all you're doing is always looking back, trying to drag the dead weight along with you. It's sad, we grieve, but sometimes you got to leave people to God. And when they're ready to come back, then you can help them. But this 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is about helping to restore the repentant brother with a forgiving spirit. What manner of person should you be when that person climbs out of that pig pen and says, would you take me back? That's the forgiving spirit of chapter 2. So we've only got, we've got five principles in chapter, two, in chapter 2 that we're going to pull out now. All right? So let's look at some of the verses now. All right? First principle of chapter 2. And again, the focus now is going to be on you and the spirit and the manner of person you ought to be as you deal with people that are trying to restore themselves and restore their lives. The goal is to build people up, not beat them down. The goal of ministry and the goal of the minister is to build people up. I don't know what language I just wrote that in. I think that middle word is people. I was, I was wrestling with caps or lowercase. I don't know what I did there. You know, that's how I write my, my, my ransom notes. But anyway, the goal of ministry is to build people up, not to beat them down. Now, underneath this, you might want to note these three words that start with P. There is a purpose to ministry. There's a why we're here. Our goal is to build people up. That's our purpose. Many of you have heard the story of when Pat Dean confronted Mel Sabaka in his office and said, what are we doing here? What's the goal of this church? And Pastor, Dean, uh, Pastor Mel very wisely said, I did not come here to build a church. I came here to build Christians. And truer words were never spoken, right? So the purpose of ministry is to build people up as trees of righteousness for God. Number two, there is a perspective about ministry. You've got to start seeing, what is my role in that? How do I help that along? How do I relate to people? Remember we said earlier, we're supposed to be helpers of their joy, not hounds of their faith, right? So I know what my purpose is. I'm supposed to build this person up. I know what my perspective is. I have a role in that. I'm supposed to help people do that. And when you get your purpose and your perspective right, you know what happens, number three? You develop a passion. You develop the right passion about ministry. This is what I'm here to do. This is how I'm supposed to do it. And that kind of fuels your passion. So underneath this thought of building people up, know your purpose, see your perspective, and develop the right passion towards people. Uh, and it's, the right passion is right there in verse number one. Paul says this, But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. He made up his mind to have the right attitude towards these people. People that wanted to make things right. People that were trying to do what God said. Trying to get out of that pig pen. And you as a minister, you need to make up your mind before you say another word to that person. Make up your mind to have the right attitude towards this person. To have the right spirit come out of your mouth. 
Paul had already used harshness in dealing with their sin. That was chapter 1. Paul determined, I'm not going to use heaviness when I direct the saints. I'm trying to build. I'm not going to beat you down and smash you and told you, look what you did. Look what you did. No, now it's time to build and restore. That's the goal. There's a great verse in Proverbs that you should note and just know. It says in Proverbs 14, verse 1, Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. You're supposed to be that wise woman. You're supposed to be that virtuous woman. You're supposed to be that godly church. Every wise woman buildeth her house, but the foolish plucketh it down with her hands. What does it mean to pluck down? It means to pull down. It means to demolish. It means to reduce to a lower estate. Question, are you helping a brother onto God? Wise. Or are you holding something over him? Foolish. If you're pulling somebody down and plucking them down, God says you're a fool. You should be looking to build and restore. I remember in the early days when we came out here, uh, I'm not an idiot. I try to get as much good advice from the older saints that I came from, like our, our pastors and elders in Staten Island. And Pastor Dean took me in his office one time. I've said this before, but it really resonated with me. He said, brother, he said, a critical spirit will kill a church faster than fornication. I think it's exactly the words he said. He said, a critical spirit will send an icy chill over the work of God. When you start looking at each other sideways and measuring each other and judging each other and holding everybody in your eye and like, what's this one doing? What's that one doing? He told me straight up, he said, brother, you watch that critical spirit. It'll ice the church over. That's what Pat Dean said to me. And if you think about what Paul is saying now, this young man had committed grievous sin. It was reported commonly. It was grievous. But you know what? He wanted to come back to God. And Paul said, you know what? I'm not going to beat this guy down. He's already suffered the punishment. Now it's time to restore him and love him and get him back to where he needs to be. That's the forgiving spirit of the minister. Look at verse number two. Watch this. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that maketh me glad but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them, among whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, uh, not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Look, if we work with people, you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to love people. That's the passion we're supposed to have. We're supposed to love people. We've heard in Staten Island for years. You know what the ministry is? Love God, love people. If you to say, what's the ministry? Love God, love people. And there's a dear, uh, a dear saint. He's got some health stuff going on. His name is Jack Patterson. He used to run like ranches for folks that were struggling with drugs and just broken homes. And he said something one time that I grabbed onto. He said, you got to love people where they are, not where you want them to be. Right? God so loved the world. Where was the world? In the sewer. And God loved you in the sewer to get you where he wanted you to be. So you've got to have that passion towards people that you're going to love them, folks. You know why? Because this is not your ministry. It's the Lord's church. And they are not your people. They're God's people. And if you think about the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, when the prodigal son came to himself, you know what he remembered? He remembered his father's love. So you know what? 
I can go back to my father. I will arise and, and say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against thee and am no more worthy to be called. You know, he knew that his father would take him back. His father must have demonstrated enough of that love for him that he said, I can go back to him. So this is very convicting to me because I've got to ask myself and ask you, will your love for people make them feel like they can come and get help from you? Or does your legalism and your lording over them and that critical spirit over them make them feel like they can never climb out of the pig pen, so why bother? It's a fine line to walk. But there's got to be, when that person's repentant, there's got to be that forgiving spirit that encourages that person to want to get back in the fight and get back in the, in the thing of things. And your love for them has got to be that thing that beckons them. Uh, I was telling Jesus before, uh, CJ, my son, is playing basketball. Uh, I won't say the team because I don't want to out uh, body. But his coach is, is, is pretty tyrannical. Like I've seen teams and coaches and I used to coach activities and I could get pretty crazy. But this guy, he's got the whole team ready to quit. Three people have quit in the last few months. Uh, a guy that was on the team for four years quit last week. Played on the team for four years, went to senior night. The next day, walked into the office, dropped his bag, and quit. Because the coach is hounding them and beating them down. And if you watch the game I watched last night, like verbally abusing them from the sideline, lambasting them, screaming at them, threatening them, harassing them, mocking them. My son says it happens in practice. And the whole team, you see them, they walk around, their shoulders are dropped. They want to quit. Why? Because this coach is supposed to be, there's more to coaching than basketball knowledge. And there's more to Christianity than just Bible knowledge. There's something about inspiring people and motivating people and helping people get off the mat and fight and rise up one more time. If there's none of that there, then what's the use? I'm just going to go back to the world because they're going to embrace me and love me. So the goal of the minister is you should be looking to love people and build them up and get them back and not keep something over them that you got them in your little black book. That's the wrong spirit. Makes people want to quit. Number two. Second principle we see in this chapter here is you need to learn to respond versus just react. And I'm not always good at that, especially when someone blows their horn behind my car. I'm very, very bad at that. I need to learn how to respond and not react. But you've got to learn to respond and not simply react. A response is biblical and spiritual. A reaction is emotional and carnal. A first responder is someone who has been trained to help in a crisis. But too often, our first reaction is an emotional outburst to a crisis. We've got to, by God's grace, become more of a responder than simply a reactor because reactors eventually explode and melt down and affect everybody around them. And by the grace of God, here's a little strange thought, but hear it and I'll explain it. You've got to use your emotions and lose your emotions at the same time. I'll show you verse 4. See verse 4? He mentions affliction, anguish of heart, tears, grief, Love. You are not a robot 
right? You're going to feel things for people. You're going to invest in people. You're supposed to love people. You're supposed to pour your life into people. You're not supposed to be a robot. This is not just a formula on a math board. Two plus two equals two. Equal, two plus two equals four. It's not that. It's, 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 a, it's a human thing. So there's going to be emotion and grief and tears. And listen, can I just warn you up front? If you're going to care for people, you're going to get hurt. You're going to have to be vulnerable enough that, you know what? I'm willing to put myself out there at the risk of getting hurt for the glory of God. I'm not saying you want to jump into it and invite yourself to it. But if you go invest in somebody, there is the possibility that that person is going to refuse your love. And one day betray you. And one day just say, nah, I'm done. And just walk away. It's a very real possibility. That doesn't, we can't guard ourselves against that if we're going to be ministers. We've got to be willing to be vulnerable enough to put ourselves out there and take those hits. And it's going to hurt us. But in verse 5 he says, But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me. You see that? Verse 4 he's like, I'm crying. I'm afflicted. I love you so much. And in verse 5 he says, Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He didn't grieve me. You've got to use your emotions and lose your emotions at the same time. You can never, as a minister, lose control. You can't lose control. They may lose control, but you can't. And so what we're doing in a class like this and in your personal study with the Lord is we're trying to know our purpose, get that right perspective, so we have the right passion, so we don't melt down. We learn to respond with biblical principles that we've tried in our own lives and can try in someone else's life and not just react like, oh my goodness, ah, that's not the way to be. You've got to be a little cool hand Luke and just kind of hear it, take it in, be instant in prayer, and it might break your heart, might cause you to cry, but you know what? Use your emotions to compel you to serve, but don't lose, lose your emotions at the same time. Be in control. That's number two. For an Italian, that's very hard. Right? Number three. And this spins right off of number two. If you're going to minister, don't take things personal. Right? Don't take it personally. Look at verse 5. If you're going to work with people, you've got to learn not to take things personally, even though they might be directed at you and said about you. <laughs> but you've got to learn to turn that off. By the grace of God only is that possible. He says, but if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. He's like, yeah, it did hurt me, it did bother me, but he didn't make it about him, Right? You can't make it about you and your hurt. That's the flesh. That's not the spirit, right? You've got to learn not to take things personally. Now, back in the day uh, when I was able to read books, um, had time to read books, uh, I had all these books I was reading for Bible Institute back in Staten Island. There was one book that really was a great book. I was trying to find it on my bookshelf, but I was running out of time this morning. I know it's there. It's called Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. It's a great book, and Pastor Mike had told us to read it many, many years ago. I read it, and uh, there's one chapter in there. It's basically Spurgeon's um, lessons to his like ministerial students, his Bible Institute, almost like a setting like this, like people that want to serve God, and he's, he's teaching them, and they recorded his sermons and wrote them down. It's called Lectures to My Students, and there's one chapter that really stood out to me, and I've turned it around to other people. I've applied it in my own life. Chapter 22 of that book is called The Blind Eye and the deaf ear. 
And in that chapter, Charles Spurgeon, the so-called Prince of Preachers, says, quote, A minister ought to have one blind eye and one deaf ear. Meaning you've got to see everything that's going on and not be overtaken by it and hear everything that's going on but not be hung up on it. Right? Not to take it so personally and react in the flesh. Let's look at a couple of verses about that. Then I'm going to give you some of Spurgeon's advice from that chapter, which I think would be very practical. He says it better than I could say it. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. These, these principles all kind of go together, like use your emotions and lose your emotions. Uh, don't take it personally. Respond. Don't react. Uh, we're going to start bleeding into each other here, even though I'm talking about them in tandem. They kind of overlap. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And this, these principles could work as a pastor, or a parent, a husband, a wife, a friend, a, just a Christian in the church house. These are great principles for life and ministry. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Also, take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise hast cursed others. He's saying you can't waste your time listening to what everybody else is saying about you. What did we say earlier? Let your testimony be that your conscience is right before God. You're trying to do the best you know to do, and people are always going to chirp. They're always going to talk, right? I bring it back to basketball. There is no such thing as a ref that calls a good game when you lose. They blew something somewhere. They messed something somewhere, and everybody's chirping, right? Everybody's got something to say, but you've got to call it the best way you see it and just keep on playing and keep on going. And so you can't get hung up on that. Now go to Isaiah chapter 42. This one's about the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 42, look at verse number 19. This is one of the key texts that Brother Spurgeon brings out. Isaiah 42, verse 19. The Bible says, and Jesus Christ is the ultimate servant. Amen? Would we agree on that? All right, so Isaiah 42 is all about God's servant, Jesus Christ. And he says in Isaiah 42, 19, he asked this question. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect? And blind as the Lord's servant? Jesus Christ is the ultimate servant. He made himself blind and deaf. He just didn't let those things throw him off. You remember some of the things they said about the sinless Son of God while He walked the earth, right? Matthew 11, they called Jesus Christ a wine-bibber and gluttonous. They called Him a drunk and a pig, right? That's what they said about your Savior. John chapter 8, they called Jesus Christ and accused Him of being a bastard, of being an illegitimate child, right? We've been not born of fornication. What was the implication there? That you were. We know about Mary and Joseph, or so they thought. And in John 7, John 8, twice, they said Jesus Christ had a devil. Right? You're being used of the devil. The Son of God. The Spirit of God incarnate, right? He's, he's being used of the devil. You ever see Jesus Christ take that personally? You ever say, what did you say about me? With a lightning rod and, you know, eviscerate somebody? No. He never let that throw him off course. 
He let them chirp, he let them talk, and he never, he turned one blind eye and one deaf ear to all that nonsense, all that stupidity, all that, all that running of the mouth. See verse 20, it says of that servant, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. He didn't take it personally. He didn't get too ruffled by it. He recognized where it was coming from. He's, and if you're going to help out in the church and maybe get some position of leadership in the church, see everything that's going on, but don't run around like a chicken without your head, with your head cut off, you know, freaking out about everything. Just some things you could just let them talk, let them chirp, right? It's between them and God. Let me tell you some of the things. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things Spurgeon said you should be a bit dumb or blind and deaf to. I'll I'll tell you what he said. You could put it in your own words. He said, number one, be deaf and blind to longstanding differences which may survive in the church. You may know people got beef with each other. I ain't having any of that. You don't like him. You don't like her. You sit over here. You sit over there. I'm not, I'm not getting involved in that right now, right? Blind and deaf, right? Blind and deaf. Number two, he says, the blind eye and the deaf ear will come in exceedingly well in connection with the gossips of the place. Now, he's talking to ministry students, right? He's talking to guys that are going to pastor and be missionaries. He's saying, you know what people are going to do? Don't say amen. They're going to gossip. They're going to talk about each other. Don't get crazy about that. It's just the nature of the sinful beast. It's going to happen. If it's a problem, you deal with it, but you've got to be a little deaf and blind to it. Don't get involved in that stuff. Number three, to all things from which you might harshly draw an unkind inference, turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. In other words, abstain from all appearance of evil. If you being involved in a conversation, a relationship is going to look poorly on your Savior, you need to divorce yourself from that. And not listen to that talk and not look at that stuff, right? Number, what am I up to? Four. Turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to never hearing what was not meant for you to hear. In other words, don't eavesdrop or be a busybody in other men's matters. That's the minister's got to be there. Number five. To opinions and remarks about yourself. Turn also a general rule, the blind eye and the deaf ear. The flattery and the complaints. I think the flattery is a lot more dangerous, right? Oh, I love you. I love your preaching. I love this. Sure, thanks. Right? I don't get, don't get too excited about that. I'll be there this week. Okay. <laughs> Hope so. There's our address. <laughs> don't get too excited when somebody's happy for you or like patting you on the back and don't get too upset when they walk out on you. Just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear because they're probably both false. (laughs) What am I up to? Six. In the case of false reports against yourself, for the most part, use the deaf ear. For the most part. Now, if somebody says, oh, you were stealing money from the church, maybe you need to address that person. But, oh, you know, he does this, he does that. If it's false, you know, whatever. People are always going to talk, right? And number seven in relation to other churches and their pastors. Turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. Right? Don't they, you know why they ask you that question on job interviews? Oh, why'd you leave your last job? That's a trap question. They want to see if you're going to rip that person in front of them. You know? No, always speak well of them. 
You know, you know, I'm not going to, don't run the bus over anybody. So somebody comes here from another church, somebody comes from another situation, they, they pour out their story. Okay, well, I'll pray for you, brother, and hope we can help you, blah, 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 blah. Because guess what? The people that might have had a problem with somebody else may eventually have that same problem with you. So, I mean, I don't, you know, don't, don't, you know, oh, I can't believe that. Oh, my goodness. Because they're looking for that, right? They're looking to kind of get an ear, to kind of get some inroads. Just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. Um, somebody came a little while ago, and they were coming to try us out from another church. You know what? Okay. Praise God. You know, spoke well of the person that I knew that they were coming from. You know, just, just listened, and it was all good in the hood. You know, that's it. Just a blind eye and a deaf ear. Um, Psalm 38, before you leave this point. Psalm 38. That makes sense? I'll keep you a lot of trouble and keep you from losing sleep at night. I mean, we had that stuff go down here a few years ago, and my goodness, I mean, some people were chirping about me. It was like, man, I was getting vilified all over the place. And eventually it was just like, okay, you know. I did the best I could the way I saw stuff going down. Let him talk, right? What did, what did David say when that guy was in name? Uh, the Shimei? When he's leaving because Absalom has taken over and he's leaving and this guy's cursing him out and he's saying, you're a bloody man. You killed the house of Saul. And he's throwing rocks at him and they want to go kill the guy. And what does David say? Ah, let him curse. <laughs> let him run his mouth. You know, it's, up, it's between him and God. Psalm 38, 11. David says, my lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore, and my kinsmen stand afar off. They also that seek after my life lay snares for me, and they that seek my hurt speak mischievous things and imagine deceits all the day long. But I, here it is, as a deaf man heard not, and I was as a dumb man that openeth not his mouth. Thus I was as a man that heareth not, and in whose mouth are no reproofs. For in thee, O Lord, do I hope. Thou wilt hear, O Lord my God. If you're going to be a spiritual man like David, you've got to be a little blind, deaf, and dumb. You've got to be a little bit, i got my eyes on Jesus Christ, and you're not knocking me off that line. If you're going to minister, because you're not going to please everybody. Somebody's going to have a gripe with something you said or did, but you've got to do the best you can. Number four. All right? Number four is where we get into the meat and potatoes of this chapter. The principle is, I'm just going to write the word forgive here. But the principle is, you don't have the right not to forgive someone. You don't have the right to not forgive anybody. That can work for you personally, in your personal life, and it can work for you practically as you work with people. Now let's go to Numbers chapter 16. To kind of break this down. We're going to spend a little bit of time here on this point. All right? Because this is really the meat of the chapter. Go to Numbers chapter 16. You know what you are, saved Christian? You are a believer priest. You are a priest of the Most High God. You know what a priest does? It's right here in Numbers 16. I love this passage. Verse number 46 of Numbers 16. The Bible says, let's take it from uh, 44. 
And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, that was the priest, Take a censer, and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation, and make an atonement for them, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord, the plague is begun. And Aaron took, as Moses commanded, and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague was begun among the people, and he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. The Levitical priest's ministry was to stand between the dead and the living, was to try to reconcile those people to God and make an atonement for them so God's wrath and judgment didn't have to fall on them. Do we see that? You are a believer priest. You stand before, you stand between God and men to try to reconcile them back to God so that God's judgment doesn't have to fall on them. Our high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he called? He's called the mediator between God and men. How does he mediate for us? By giving his life a ransom for many, forgiving our sins via his sacrifice. Okay, let's swing it around to you. You as a minister or a New Testament priest, you're supposed to give of yourself to forgive and reconcile others back to God. Because of who you are as a saved child of God and a believer priest, you don't have the right to not forgive anybody and withhold that blessing from them. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 again. Let's spend some time there. Didn't expect a lot of amens on this, I know. <laughs> I'm kidding. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 10. All right, second, uh, and please, forgiveness is not getting slapped in the face and saying, thank you, sir, may I have another. Thank you, sir, may I have another. That's not what I mean. All right, forgiveness is loosing a debt. All right, loosing a debt. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2.10, look at this expression here. Paul says, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgive I it in the person of Christ. As a Christian, you're supposed to be a little Christ. And if Christ could forgive you, why can't you forgive? He forgave in the person of Christ. Look at chapter 5 of the same book and look at verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. He said in chapter 2, in the person of Christ, he says over here, in Christ's stead. You stand as a representative of Jesus Christ. How can you not forgive someone? Christ would forgive them. Christ did forgive them. The Old Testament had a high priest. His name was Aaron, whose sons were priests by blood. The New Testament has a high priest. His name is Jesus Christ, whose church are priests by the book. We are priests. Now go to John chapter 20. Let me go over there to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Again, this whole chapter is about the, the minister, the forgiving spirit of the minister. So I'm just impressing this on you here. John chapter 20, Jesus Christ is commissioning his disciples in the upper room. And down there by verse 21, he says this. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. 
Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Now, the Catholic Church takes that verse out of context and says, See, you have the power to absolve people's sins. That's not what that verse is talking about. That verse is saying that as a believer priest right now, you have the power now to help free people from their sins. You could take that gospel and take that book and show somebody how to get those sins remitted and get those sins forgiven. That's what that verse is talking about. And Jesus Christ died on the cross to make forgiveness and reconciliation possible. He made it possible. You, as a Christian, are supposed to take the word of God, the word of reconciliation, to make forgiveness and reconciliation personal. Jesus made it possible. you got to make it personal. you got to bring it down to that person's life with the word of God. So, what do we do? If we're dealing with a sinner, what is our goal? In any conversation, we talked about this last year, you're trying to get that person to the gospel. You're trying to take the Bible to reconcile them to God. Right? You meet people in a store, or, you know, uh, what do you do? You listen to the stories, but eventually you're looking for an avenue in a way to get them to Christ and get the gospel in there some way. And there's many ways to, I was going to use that expression, skin a cat, but that's very cruel and vicious. I don't want to say that to all the cat people. Right? There's many ways to kind of, whoever came up with that expression, right? There's many ways to kind of get there. There's many avenues to kind of get that point across, right? So what if we're dealing with a saint saved? Same principle. If you're directing a saint, you take the Bible and you're trying to restore their fellowship with God. Your goal is somehow they're going through this, they're going through that, they've been out of fellowship. You're trying to get them back to walking with God again. Reconciliation. Ephesians chapter 4. You're the believer priest. You're the believer priest. That was the priest's job, was to reconcile people to God and mediate. That's your job today as a minister of Christ. Ephesians 4.32. So that's one reason why you should forgive. Number two, another reason to forgive, because Christ forgave you, you rascal. Right? 4.32. Man, we taught our kids this verse. I'm sure you did too. And be kind one to another. Don't pull her hair. Don't throw her down the stairs. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as the same way God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. If God has forgiven you, you have no right to withhold forgiveness from others. It's another reason why. Remember the parable Jesus spoke about the servant, the wicked servant, who didn't want to forgive his brother when his Lord had forgiven him? He called them wicked. He said it's wicked. He said to that guy, Shouldest not thou also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? How could you really have tasted God's forgiveness and pity and compassion, and when somebody's broken about their sin, and maybe they've offended you and want to make things right, you're not going to forgive them? I didn't mean you had to go out to dinner with the person again and have them over for Christmas turkey, but you still can forgive that person, right? And loose that debt. Jesus taught his disciples to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, in the Old Testament, there was a real doctrinal implication that if you didn't forgive that brother, God was going to withhold forgiveness from you. Thankfully, he's forgiven you now, but practically, how can you now practically withhold that forgiveness from somebody else? You say, why should I forgive? Well, number one, forgive because you probably put yourself in a situation that needed forgiveness eventually. I mean, let's take, for example, marriage. 
Somebody's going to stand up in front of God and everybody and grandma on the photos and say, I take thee for richer, for poorer, for better or worse. And you're vowed to take that person for better or worse. And as soon as things started getting a little bit worse than you wanted, you're ready to reach for the exit door and not forgive that person. That's not right. That's not right. You put yourself in a relationship, in a situation that warrants forgiveness, and eventually we need you to forgive that person. How could you then say, well, I can't forgive them? That's nonsense. That's nonsense. Number two, forgive people because some Christians are just nasty, and they're just mad at God, and they can't take it out on God, so you know what they're going to do? They're going to take it out on you. That's what nasty Christians do. There is nothing more miserable. There is not a more miserable person on earth than a Christian out of fellowship with God. And they will take it out on you and rant on you and kvetch to you and make you their whipping post. Why? Because they got a beef with God. So when the reproaches of Christ fall on you, just realize they're really fallen on Christ and forgive them anyway. And number three, forgive because God has forgiven you. If number one doesn't apply, you're in a relationship that warrants forgiveness. And number two doesn't apply because, you know, um, what, they're mad at God. Well, then number three definitely applies. God's forgiven you if you're saved. Amen. Go to 2 Corinthians 2 again. We're almost done, folks. 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2, look at verse 10. He says, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sake forgive I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Can I tell you something? An unforgiving spirit opens the door for the devil to destroy something. Not always false. There's a few things in the Bible that talk about the devil getting in there. One is uh, Ephesians 4, right? Give no place to the devil. He's talking about anger. And over here, he's talking about a forgiving spirit. You would think it's like false doctrine and opening the door to a heretic. No, those people will stay away if your heart's right with God. The thing that's really going to destroy a family, a marriage, a church, a ministry is an unforgiving spirit. It says it gives the devil an advantage. You know something? If you're saved and full of the Holy Spirit of God and walking with God, the devil has no advantage over you. He doesn't. Sometimes we think the devil is like fleas. If we get too close to somebody, it's going to jump on us. And we're, oh no, the boogeyman's going to get us. It doesn't work like that. It works when you give that devil the advantage and you relinquish the power that God has given you and you put yourself in his domain and under his influence. And one way you do that is holding on to somebody's sins and refusing to forgive. You give the devil an open door to come in and raise Cain in a situation. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Got just two verses left. Hebrews chapter 12. Maybe you could take a little bit more. Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, look at verse number 14. I hope this is helping, not only in just a uh, practical way, but a personal way. This stuff has really been in my mind the last few weeks. I've been looking at it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 14. He says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Why should we forgive? Priest, Christ forgave you, gives the devil an advantage, 
and it'll make you bitter. Bitterness is a deadly emotion. A deadly emotion. The unbiblical response of unforgiveness leads to bitterness. Did God give you grace? Amen? I was weak. Does God give you grace? It's been a long morning. I'm almost done. God gives you grace. You know how God's grace fails? When you fail to show that grace to somebody else. That's how God's grace fails. See, how could God's grace fail when you fail to show that grace to somebody else? He says, you better not be bitter lest any man fail of the grace of God. And the bitterness is a failure to extend the grace God's given you to someone else. You know what he says? That bitterness might spring up like a tree. You don't want to let that tree get its roots in too deep. It's interesting he likens bitterness to a tree. You want to hear some parallels? Number one, the roots grow beneath the surface, unnoticed by others, but they're there. That's how bitterness works. The roots, number two, they grow best in darkness, away from the light, alone perhaps, just letting things turn over in your mind, away from the brethren, away from church. Number three, the roots grow best best in dirt. When you're not clean, the bitterness grows. The roots grow. Number four, roots grow well if you add a little manure to the situation, a little fertilizer, especially some manure, some dung. You know when roots grow well? When there's some contamination nearby. What am I up to? One, two, three, four, five. The roots can grow swiftly. Oh, it could throw some roots down fast sometimes. Number six, the roots grow stronger every day. You know that? Roots are constantly spreading and growing and going deeper, and they grow deeper every day. That's number, I guess, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven things there, right? Under the surface, in darkness, in dirt, in manure, swiftly, stronger every day, and deeper every day. You plant a little sapling, It's there for a month and a half. That sucker's easy to just uproot. You let something sit there for six months, six years, ten years, stuff that's just been eating at you, you go to try to pull that sucker up, that ain't coming up so easy anymore. So don't take too long to forgive, lest any root of bitterness spring up. And it says, you know what happens with those roots, right? In time, those roots will attach themselves to everything else, and it's just going to swallow it up. And then when you go to pull it up, you know what happens? You're pulling up somebody's sidewalk. You're pulling up something else in your garden. You're pulling up a lot of stuff because those roots have spread and made inroads into so many things. He says right there that bitterness will defile. It says it right there in verse number 15. It'll spring up and defile many. That bitterness will defile everyone that bitter tree touches. You as a believer priest are supposed to guard against that in your own life and in your church's life and in the people you minister to. Forgiveness is key. And number five, lastly, and this is brief, and we'll go home on this one. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 to 16. I'm purposely not going to get to verse number 17 
Next month, God willing, we're going to jump off with verse 17 and all talk about the Word of God and how the Word of God is the minister's manual and uh, the minister is directed by it and all the things that the Word of God does for you and principles you can use to apply to help other people and yourself. But here's the last principle that we want to touch on in chapter 2. It's in verse 14 to 16. He says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor's knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? Last principle, you are always a winner if you serve God the right way. Don't ever lose sight of the victory. You always can have the victory. The world, the flesh, and the devil will make you feel like a loser. When you forgive, oh, you gave up. Like as if not forgiving somehow puts you on a high road. But when the devil and the world and the flesh makes you feel like a loser, God says, no, 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 no. You're doing it my way. You're always going to come out on top. You're always going to end up winning. You're always going to triumph because we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. No matter the outcome, able ministers, you always triumph if you minister with the right spirit. This is all about the right spirit, the forgiving spirit, the manner in which you minister. No matter what the outcome is, if you're doing it with the right spirit, you're always going to win in God's day. Listen, the lost person may never receive your witness. You still triumphed because God called you to be a witness. You triumphed. And those people you're trying to help, they may still go to pieces. You're still a winner if you did it God's way. The Lord did not call you to be successful. He called you to be faithful. And the judgment seat of Christ will not measure your success in serving. It will measure the spirit of your service. What sort was it? What spirit, what manner, what quality embodied the things that you did? That's what God's looking for. So if you're going to work with people, never lose sight of the victory Don't give up. If you do it God's way, in the end, you will always triumph. Amen? Amen? Let's have a word of prayer. Thanks for being here today. Lord, we thank you for this time today. We thank you for these principles. Lord, they're all of you. It's all by you and for you and through you. So help us, Lord, to go forth from this place and first apply these things in our own lives that we might be able to then apply them to somebody else. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to remember and not let the devil steal what you've sown in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.